according to Matthew, must be attentive. Glory to me, O Lord, glory to me. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringing him up to a high mountain apart, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone as the sun, and his raiment was white as light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter then, an then answered Peter and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here, if you will. Let us make your three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he yet spoke, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were sore afraid. And then Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man, save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man, until the Son of Man be risen again. Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We said. It's pretty hot today. <laughs> oh, I keep wishing for someone like at MIT or some technical school to come up with air conditioned vestments. It would be really, really nice. But I think I'm going to have to wait for that. Of course, if it was inflated with air, I probably would look like a Michelin man. So I don't know. That's maybe not so good. Anyway, uh, some of you may know, at least I know Chris knows, we've had this uh, couple of email exchanges. That before I worked on destroyers, I worked for about 25 years in civil engineering offices. So these are the guys who do site work before there's any construction of buildings or roadways or sidewalks or and all that utility stuff that all the cities depended on, towns and cities depended on. And I almost used to feel sorry for the engineers before, before because before they could start a project, before they could start planning for any kind of site work, they had to do topographical survey. You go out there and you have to take shots and elevations to find the low spots and to find the high spots in the area that you want to build on. The crown and the peak on any high spot, of course, is, is it creates a watershed. As is the, when the rain falls, it has to go one way or the other. And that's, the, and that's all there is to it. And the engineers have to know how much water is going to be in that watershed that they are trying to define, they're trying to determine, and they have to do all these uh, drainage calculations. It's laborious work, but they have to find out how much water they're going to be dealing with in any given rainfall that's going to be around the site that 
they want to build on. It's critical, but it's tedious. You used to feel so sorry for those guys, hours after hours, gathering all this data and trying to crunch all these numbers to come up with these drainage reports, these drainage calculations, and to determine what the watershed is. A watershed for a certain construction site can go for miles. Not just blocks, sometimes the watershed for a certain area goes on for miles, and they have to take into consideration all that surface water that will eventually find its way to that particular site. It's kind of like the Great Continental Divide out west. I'm not quite sure what state it is. It's in the Rockies. But it's called the Continental Divide because it is at that point in the Rockies that when rain falls, it is either going to eventually find its way either to the Atlantic Ocean or ultimately find its way to the Pacific Ocean. The water is going to go one way or the other. It's just the way it is. Today, Christ takes Peter, James, and John to another high place, to another deep mouse table, 2,000 vertical feet above the Sea of Galilee. Pretty tall. You can see it from far, far away. It's a big, big mountain. Not nearly as high as Sinai, but still a considerable mountain to climb. Christ takes his chosen apostles, his three closest apostles, takes them to this high mountain, and there is another watershed that will be taking place on this mountain. It is the watershed that is going to be separating Christ's Galilean ministry from his Judean ministry. It's going to be a watershed that makes a separation between consoling the children of Israel to confronting the scribes and the Pharisees in Jerusalem. It's going to be a watershed that's going to uh, differentiate between looking upon Christ as true God, very God, a very God, or merely as a righteous man, a great teacher, or a rabbi. There's no two ways about it. It is a watershed. There is an ancient document called the Didache. I don't know if you've read it. It's one of the earliest Christian texts that we have. Second session, written by the apostles moral and, and canonical kind of instruction, but in the very beginning it says, there is the way of life, and there is the way of death, and there is a great difference between the two. There is a watershed for all those who want to believe in Christ and to follow Christ. There is patristic commentaries on this event. Just as, mind just escaping me right now who the the uh, Patricia commentator is that I'm thinking of, but makes a parallel, makes a corollary between the transfiguration of Christ and the theophany of Christ. It's baptism. Theophany is a word that doesn't necessarily have to be restricted to Christ's baptism in the Jordan by John. Theophany is any revelation of God unto man. And if we read the scriptures, you'll discover that there are many theophanies throughout the scriptures. The three angels that visited Abraham. You have the pillar of cloud uh, that led Israel by day and the column of fire that led them by night. You have all those events in the Exodus. Yes, when you have the, the baptism of Christ and the river Jordan by John. And now this theophany, another theophany of Christ being transfigured on Mount Tabor. Maybe the ultimate theophany of all. 
But it is this, uh, in the commentary, they make this corollary that the two have a lot in common. And the thing that they had in mind was by saying that only in uh, Christ's baptism by John in the River Jordan and transfiguration are the three full persons of the Trinity made manifest. Christ, the incarnate Word, you have the Holy Spirit that descended upon Christ in the form of a dove at his baptism. Here it is the descent of a bright cloud that overshadowed Christ and the apostles, which said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then you have the voice out of the cloud, uh, the presence of God, instructing those who heard it. So you had, in only these two occasions, a full manifestation of the Holy Trinity. But of course, with transfiguration, there was something more distinctive, more dis it sets it apart from all the other events. And that is the appearance of Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah appear with Christ and we're talking with him. Of course, Moses and Elijah are the, they're the very personification of the law and the prophets. These are, these are congruous. They are not antithetical. The law and the prophets, they complement each other. The law that is uh, what? Uh, given in words, the prophets that are the spirit of the law. The two have to go hand in hand. And they are ultimately conjoined in the gospel of Christ. We know that. Moses and Elijah, the, the, the whole, uh, we have this complementarity of all of this. We also have, um, what, the, uh, what am I saying? the continuity, the continuity of the law and the prophets and the gospel. We see God's continuous unfolding revelation of himself and his desire to save all mankind for the kingdom of heaven. This continuous unfolding revelation through the ages, and it's now here present again at the transfiguration of Christ. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, there is that uh, complementarity of the law and the prophets, there is that continuity of the law and the prophets in the gospel. You have um, St. John Chrysostom, and um, there was another saint, uh, I'm forgetting now again, who pointed out that it was important that Moses be there because so oftentimes people accuse Christ of being a transgressor of the law. So Moses needed to be there to show that Christ was, was, uh, had affinity for the law. He even went so far as to say in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, uh, I do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he said, not an iota, not a dot of the law will be, will be taken away until all has been accomplished. He who relaxes even the least of these commandments and teaches men so will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. But those who keep these commandments and teach men so will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, not enter kingdom of heaven. It was important for Moses to be there. What about Elijah? Elijah, Christ was oftentimes confused to be Elijah or uh, the other prophets, uh, Jeremiah. And so it was important that he appear also so that we could see the distinction. 
Christ is not to be confused with the prophets. He is the Lord, and he is appearing now with one of his servants. Another reason that St. John Chrysostom and Theophila uh, of, uh, of Ochre is the other one. He obviously had was familiar with St. John Chrysostom and it reflected in his comment. It is Theophila uh, of, of uh, Ochre that is also making the same comments and observations. And he asked another reason why Moses and Elijah needed to be there. It was so that it could be shown that Christ is Lord over death and life. He is Lord over all that is above and everything that is below. Moses, who tasted death in the flesh, and Elijah, who was taken out before he tasted death. So it's important, it is remarkable, it is a distinctive feature of this event that Moses and Elijah should appear in Christ. Today, the Feast of Transfiguration, metamorphosis. If you're from the Greek tradition, you're familiar with the Greek tradition, and all the icons that don't have Cyrillic or English across the top, you'll see the word metamorphosis. The Feast of Metamorphosis. Which I think captures more than maybe the English word transfiguration. But metamorphosis is such an accurate term. But more than metamorphosis of whom? Of Christ? It's not a metamorphosis of Christ. Christ revealed who he has always been from the beginning in this event on Mount Tabor. It's the metamorphosis of us, the metamorphosis of those who want to be his apostles, those who want to be his disciples, those who want to follow after him. It is our metamorphosis that, that this feast inaugurates. Our metamorphosis. Everything Christ does, he does to lead us to the kingdom of heaven, to show the way to the kingdom of heaven. All that he does, he does on our behalf to show us what must be if we are to have life with God and life in God. And what was the reaction of the apostles? First of all, they fell down on their faces. Partly out of fear, partly out of worship. They fell on their faces. I just read recently somewhere that suddenly made an observation. Saints are the ones who fall down on their faces before God. The wicked fall backwards. They fall backwards before God. But these men fell on their faces in worship and in fear. And then Peter, probably in Petrus, says, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, let us build three booths, three tabernacles for you, for Moses, and for Elijah. Why did he say that? Peter is wanting to detain Christ from going to Jerusalem and the cross that awaited him there. How do we know this? If you read the account of the transfiguration in the Gospel of Luke, Luke says, two men appeared conversing with Christ and appeared in glory, Moses and Elijah, and they were discussing his departure, which he was to accomplish in Jerusalem. They were talking about the crucifixion. And the apostles heard this. So Peter wants to restrain Christ. Peter wants to say, let us stay here. Let us be in this place. Let us be in this glory, this wonder and this splendor, and, this, and let's not go to Jerusalem. Let's circumvent the cross. Let's do what's good and right for us. Of course, that was not to be. But isn't that the cause of our first separation from God, even from the very beginning with Adam and Eve? 
We want to live life on our own. We want to live life for ourselves. We want to do what's good for us. That is the first fall of humanity. The first fall of Adam. Pulled away from God. He turned away from God. He wanted to make it on his own. We know how that turned out. What's the antidote? The antidote is to do just the very opposite. It is to deny oneself. Turn your back on yourself. To put God first. To do, put the needs of others before your very own. This is the only antidote to the fall of humanity. And it is the glorified humanity that Christ comes to restore. Last week, well, let me, let me first start by saying, I heard a story a long, long time ago. It's probably true. There was a Sunday school teacher who wanted to give a lesson to the kids on what a saint is. So she packed them all up, marched them back up to the church. This was after the service. I guess it was a Protestant church, you know, with all the stained glass windows. And so she started, she gave what she wanted to share with the kids, and then she asked the question, so tell me, you tell me, what is a saint? And of course, out of the mouths of babes comes this pearl of wisdom. A child says, and he points to the stained glass window, he says, well, a saint is a person that the light shines through. A saint is a person that the light shines through. This is the telos, the trajectory of all of humanity that Christ desired for us from the beginning. The telos of humanity, the uh, trajectory, is the kingdom of God. It's this restored humanity, this newness in Christ. Last Sunday, we experienced the baptisms. Baptisms were three, the chrismation of one person. And the details of the baptismal service are very significant. The robes of incorruption, the crosses that they put on, that they put on the cross of Christ, the tapers of light that they hold in their hand, being anointed with oil of gladness. Like all the kings were anointed, the kings of old were always anointed with the oil of gladness. And receive the blessing of God to do what they needed to do. All these things are so important for us and for this feast. Feast of Transfiguration, the Feast of Metamorphosis, is the feast where God is preparing for us the kingdom of heaven. And He's preparing us to receive the kingdom of heaven. First, by falling down and worshiping Him as God, a very God, a very God. Not just a man, not just a rabbi, but the pre-eternal Son and living Word of God. Secondly, we must listen to Him. We must obey and honor Him. By listening to Him, it means we will follow Him. It means we will imitate Him. We will try to be as He is by the grace and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to be transformed, to be transfigured, to be like Christ. One Baptist minister a long time ago said, no cross, no crown. That's simple. <laughs> you're not, if you don't go into battle, you're not going to get medals of honor. It's the same thing with Christianity. No cross, no crown. If you don't take up, if you don't deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow him, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. So my brothers and sisters, on this great feast today, the fraternal feast of this small parish, 
Let us follow Christ. Let us surrender ourselves for metamorphosis so that God can make new creatures out of us, turn us, uh, uh, give us new life, new breath, new being, new eyes, new ears, new heart, new minds, that we may follow after him, turn away from the ways of the world, follow after him, and to receive the kingdom of heaven. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.